This is Mission.org. I think there's a lot of exciting times ahead for marketing. I think marketing technology still has a lot of a way to go to develop, to create the kind of ROI, and also, frankly, just to be easy to use. Making a shift as global CEO for an established agency like Ogilvy PR, with thousands of employees, to building and leading a skeleton team at one of the fastest growing food brands around is not an easy task. Learning to scale that team while finding new ways to educate your target consumer in a fun way is also not an easy task. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, and today we're going to hear from Stuart Smith, the Chief Marketing Officer of Collipower. We'll hear about his marketing journey where he educated people about a new type of product and leaned into influencer marketing in a big way with incredible talent like Dan Levy. Honestly, this is a great company. Their pizzas and crusts are amazing. I'm just going to say that. My producer, Dustin, and I literally went out after this episode to go buy pizzas for our family because Kali Power is legit. I think you're going to love this episode. Let me know what you think. I know I will. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. I just got to say, I mean... So Stephanie, uh, our, our fa- the co-founder of our business, you know, interviewed the founder of Kyle Power, uh, I guess a few weeks ago, and she said that that was an amazing conversation. And then, of course, we had the opportunity to somehow loop you into the mix. And as I got a chance to look into your background, I mean, you're a legend in the game, man, a legend in the game. I mean, in terms of the experience at Ogilvy, I mean, the experience in marketing and PR and advertising in that world and the places you've worked at, I already know a lot about, I think a bit about your perspective, just given the nature of your responsibility and the things you were doing. And now you're devoted in this Power mission, which I find super interesting, you know, given all the things you've done. I'm honored to connect with you and I'm glad we could make this happen because this is uh this is really exciting for us. I'm honored too. I don't I don't often do this kind of stuff to be honest. I sort of I tend to try and make other people and other brands famous rather than sort of push myself forward. So take me gently through the process. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. First question is 72% of marketers say that meeting customer expectations is more difficult than it was a year ago. How has this played out for you at Kali Power? And what is your team doing to tackle 
this seemingly consistent challenge of rising customer expectations? It's really interesting. The pandemic has obviously changed everything. We, we, we're still going to have to reference that from a marketing context, I think, for another year or two to come, particularly in comparative data and a whole bunch of things. But I mean, consumer expectations, meeting those at the moment, it's like, can you actually make the product? Can you get it onto a shelf? And also battling with, with the problems that a lot of brands are having with retailers where retailers are trying to simplify the supply chain. And actually that's reducing the number of SKUs that can go on shelf and it's, redu it's reducing consumer experience. You know, consumers are seeing some of their favorite products or flavors sort of disappearing, probably because the velocities are in the lower quartile. There's a lot of rationalization happening within, I think, retail, particularly within CPG and food. It's interesting. We were just talking with Avery Dennison, SmartTrack, their head of communications and and marketing, and she was talking about some of these, the retail game in terms of the these RFID, you know, digital IDs they're able to put on clothing now to to track supply chain all the way from manufacturer to consumer, and what that's going to do for the experience there. And that whole that whole world's getting shooken up, as you know, especially when it comes to CPG side of things. Another question for you: ninety percent of marketers say the pandemic changed their digital engagement strategy. What are some of the new strategies and just high-level tactics that maybe your team adopted over the past year and a half? This will probably come back as a topic throughout our conversation, but we're different because we're a frozen brand. So the D2C game for a frozen brand is difficult, to say the least. Uh, if you're trying to sell a frozen pizza on, on Amazon, then you know, you're going to have to swallow a big delivery charge. The frozen shipping is really quite expensive. So essentially, you know, in the first couple of years, we were basically sort of building the brand through social, Facebook, Google, driving awareness. Then we started sort of doing food trucks, going across the country, doing sampling and a range of things. Lots of very sort of standard awareness tactics, a lot of very standard sort of, you know, getting a bit of pizza in someone's mouth kind of tactic. Then I had uh, the sort of, I, I love data and I, I got a bit of revelatory data come to me in, in early 2019. We were talking to some of our partners, and I think one conversation we had was with Instacart, who then turned around to me in 2019 and said, oh, you do realize that $3 million worth of your retail sales are going online at the moment? And I sort of stopped for a moment and thought, well, I sort of, I, I knew that was happening. I was so busy building a brand over here. I wasn't looking at the, the bottom end of the funnel and, and how consumers were buying us and sort of assumed that people wouldn't be buying us online, but obviously... They can because they can buy them through the e-commerce infrastructure of our retail partners and through the apps of our retail partners and others. So I took a really close look at that <laughs> and I Googled on Walmart.com and a couple of the other dot-coms. I Googled cauliflower and just, it came up with a spelling error and it said, would you like some cauliflower florets? And I thought, well, that's not very good. That's not a good consumer journey experience. So we basically audited all of the online retailer.com websites to try and find out what the what the CX was really for any consumer trying to buy our products or find our products or even find the category that we're in. And we discovered it was a bit of a mess. You know, we're a startup. We hadn't looked at that kind of stuff. So we looked at how we showed up in terms of pictures, videos, product descriptions, just tidied the whole thing up. And then that opened up the world of, you know, sponsored products. And we got a digital game because we basically cleared out the pipes between our consumers and the retail purchase, the online retail purchase experience. We do have that game now. And the other game that I'm moving us into now is you'd say, well, if we're not D2C, we won't actually have any first-party data, but other people do have first-party data. So at the moment, in the last year, we've been doing a lot of experiments with other people's first-party data, 
to try and sort of do some more, try and find workarounds for the fact that we're not D to C. Like retail partners data? Uh, no, you, you got lots of people have got the data. You know, credit card companies have got data. Numerator has data. Retailers have data. You know, I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to do is plug a lot of the digital dead ends that I think exist for a, for a frozen product like us. I mean, I, <laughs> I would love to be just promoting a protein bar online. Then I would just take millions of dollars of trade and other money, give it to Amazon, Google and Facebook and, you know, go and sit, go and sit on the beach and wait for the sales to roll in. Is there a play in the near, in the not too distant future for just directly ordering, you know, not going through a retail partner? If you look at our sort of our uh, product portfolio, it, it's entirely frozen at the moment. It, it, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to work out that actually there are other temperature states that are available to us. If I'm a marketeer, am I sort of looking at our innovation and saying, well, actually, it'd be quite handy to have a shelf shelf stable product because then I can bring a lot a lot more people to the brand a lot more quickly, a lot more cheaply. All the treasures of the digital marketing cavern are open to me to use. So let's take a step back to the just the, the beginning of you from the outside looking into the color power opportunity. You know, if anyone has the opportunity to to check out Stuart Smith's background, you'll see the 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 places that he's worked, the things he's done, and just absolutely incredible. What was kind of going in around your thoughts at, at the time before you joined Color Power? What was the stage of the business? What did you see at that point where you were like, okay, this is the ship I'm jumping on next? <laughs> well, I, I have to I have to make a small confession. Which is that actually the the founder that you keep mentioning, Gail Becker, is uh, is actually my wife. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> so the the backstory is very. It's, I mean, it, it is it is interesting. I mean, I've been extremely privileged to work at a number of big agencies. You know, whether they're the sort of independents or a, a number of WPP agencies, as you know. You know, my last few years was at was at Ogilvy, where you know I've, I've worked with you know some incredible marketers, some great strategists, some amazing marketing technologists. You know, they call Ogilvy a teaching hospital. You know, I learned a huge amount in my 10 years there, way beyond the, you know, what I knew coming into Ogilvy and WPP. And I've worked with some of the most amazing marketeers at Unilever, Microsoft, Intel, PMG. So I've been enormously lucky over my career. And it got me to a point where I'd been running that division of Ogilvy for, I think, four or five years globally. And Gail had been uh, collar power in 2017, 2016. The company was basically experiencing hypergrowth and she was looking for a CMO. So uh, around about Thanksgiving, she turned around to me and said, you know what, why am I looking for a CMO when I've got one sitting around the Thanksgiving table? Would you like to do it? And uh, the, the thing that people don't know is that we got married when I moved to New York to work for Ogilvy in 2015, but we didn't actually live together. She was living and working in LA. I was living and working in New York. So we hadn't actually lived together. So I said, so the, so the benefit is I, on a Friday, I moved to live with my wife for, for the first time, four years after we got married. On the Monday, I started working for her. And then, then obviously the pandemic happened and we've been in the same house for the last 725 days. And um, we're still happily married. That is the most important thing, I think. The thing that she really hired me to do was to sort of take a marketing team that was very, very small with a very, very outsourced base to a number of agencies and just say, look, we have to scale this team. We have to have a world-class team building a, a brand really, really quickly. Would you come and try and help us go through the stages of a large CPG company, but do it in really quick time? And so my, my job has been to sort of insource, build the strategy. My marketing title is not sort of head of marketing communications. What I love about the job and what really attracted it to me, attracted me to this job was 
I've got innovation in marketing, new product development, customer experience, everything. It's, I'm not the head of marketing communications. I've got growth in my title. So it, it gives me a chance to stick my nose into everything in the company. Anything that's dragging and holding our growth back or you know, anything that could accelerate our growth, I can sort of tinker with. What are some of the things you did in the first you know, 90 days to, to accelerate growth in terms of build a high-performing team? It's going to sound like marketing 101. It's like, what are we spending our money on? To what effect? What are we actually trying to do? What is the job that marketing is, you know, has, to be, has to do? And I think that in the first two years, the job of the marketing team was to build a brand and generate excitement and get lots of excitement online with influencers and celebs and lots of good PR and a whole range of things. I think the thing that I realized as I joined was that we needed to sort of rebalance that so that we were still generating buzz for the brand, still generating influence for the brand, but we needed to move towards a more sort of data-driven performance marketing approach. We had to support sales. We had to look at velocity. We had to look at a whole range of sort of aspects of marketing to make sure that we were focused on making our new product launches successful, building loyalty, generating diva household penetration, and just basically bring a bit of science to the, to the marketing that we were doing. I'm a scientist, ex-scientist, so I like data and I like structure and I like a strategy that's really clear and has got a single-minded approach. Do you have a, is it a PhD in, in physical science from Oxford? That's right. Yeah. Basically, chemistry is the easiest way to describe it. I was, I was trying to work out why the ozone hole existed. Where is this intersection now of marketing and advertising? Where did that, where did that happen? The thing that I've always talked about, and particularly in my time at WPP, was the fact that I felt that building brands in an earned first way was a, was a very clever way to do things. You know, Why wouldn't you have ideas for a brand that would earn attention, earn, earn influence, and earn media? I always sort of saw the, uh, the, the sort of separation between PR communications as marketing as being rather artificial. And the trouble is that the spend on things like PR were very, very small, but the power of PR to, to change a brand's trajectory was underestimated by marketing. The PR industry found it very difficult to persuade marketing that it had good ideas that could help build a brand at scale. I think what I was able to do particularly at Ogilvy, was work with creatives to generate ideas for brand that earned media. And why wouldn't you want to earn media rather than pay for it? You know, if an idea has got legs in the newspapers and, and with influencers, why wouldn't you have an idea for the brand rather than one that you have to just pay to force people to consume? What is the stage of Kali Power right now in terms of a company? Well, the business is way over 100 million now, which is great after just five years really in market. I think the sky's the limit in the sense that the kind of consumer love that we've generated and the kind of opportunities we've got to move into different day parts, different meal occasions, different temperature states, you know, there's, there's absolutely no reason why the company couldn't double or triple in size over the next, next few years. So are there, are there several moments in the day when you and Gail just stop and start dancing around the house because... <laughs> Every, I mean, the world, the world is changing and is evolving. And then you're, and Kali Power is a big part of that change. I could just imagine there'd be a lot of celebratory high fives and, and toasts and things like that. It's fabulous. I mean, one of the things that I miss about being in our office in LA is that Gail installed the big brass bell. And so, you know, whenever there was a new retailer authorization or, or an influencer tweeted about us, you know, she would come out of her office and sort of ring the bell and sort of everyone would get round and there would be sort of general fun and jollity and probably drinks after work as well. 
you know, that's one of the things that working remotely has, has reduced our ability to celebrate like that in a very human way, unfortunately. Have you guys done anything different or unique or, or tested and tried things to, to keep that connection, that tightness together? For me, as a, as a sort of a marketing leader, I was obviously already used to working across time zones using technology. You know, it's, it's the only way. So, so for me, that sort of transition was not difficult. I think the thing that was difficult, you know, even for me, was the sheer sort of scale of doing everything online all the time, every day, and having very, very little in-person experience. One of the things that we've uh, we've tried to do is just be just more mindful of people's personal situations. You know, when there are a couple at home with two two young kids in a thousand square foot apartment, or whether someone's just moved cities and is on their own in their bedsit somewhere. You know, just trying to understand people's personal context has become more important. And you know, I've tried, and I think we've all tried to be more mindful of people's personal circumstances. It's tricky because you don't want to sort of be nosy or pry too much, but but understanding people's personal context is super important in this really intense online way that we're working. I mean, we're lucky in the sense that we we're a, we're a technically an exempt business during the pandemic, so we could still get together, and you know, a, a few of us did get together now and again during the lulls in the uh, in the waves of uh, the pandemic when people were happy to get together and, you know, we'd been vaccinated and stuff like that, we did get together outside or indoors at certain moments. So it's not that we haven't been together, but I don't think we found any magic answers. We just had to sort of figure it out and try and help us help us all get through with good mental health. Over the years with your, again, experience working with some amazing brands, some amazing marketers, I'm sure you've developed a relationship with velocity and growth. And also a relationship with failure and kind of how you view those things. And I'm just would love to hear your thoughts on on each of those. Let's take the let's take the first one. What is your relationship with just velocity and growth now? Everything's again situational. It's all contextual, isn't it? I think the uh, the job of helping a company like PNG, you know, generate growth is very different to the the kind of job that you need to do for for Colipow. I think the the thing that I've always tried to hold at the center of all my thoughts around the sort of the idea of growth and velocity is that there needs to be some sort of structure. There needs to be some maths within the strategy. You know, a company like Colipad grows very quickly through distribution in the first two or three years. Once the giddy, heady days of distribution growth start to sort of slow down, what matters is, is whether the consumer continues to love you, continues to buy you, and continues to buy you more frequently. So the relationship it flips with growth very quickly from you know gaining distribution to maintaining consumer love and loyalty. So we've had to do that very quickly. We have we've had to do that for pizza. For some of our newer products, we're still in the giddy days of sort of extra distribution growth. So part of what I've done is tried to sort of bring some demand generation discipline so that sales and marketing are working very, very closely together to plan trade and to plan campaign events and to do everything that is designed to acquire consumers intelligently you know what who is the cheapest consumer to acquire what is their behavior once we acquire them using that particular sort of consumer acquisition route what is their behavior afterwards you know if it costs me ten dollars to acquire a consumer and she buys once or it costs me uh, five hundred dollars to buy to, to acquire a consumer and that person buys us five times a month for the rest of their lives you know that that relationship between consumer loyalty, consumer acquisition and lifetime value. That's part of what I've had to install into the company because, you know, a company like PNG or Unilever, they have all this stuff. They have their spreadsheets, they have their data. 
it doesn't exist and you don't need it until you get to a certain point in your growth. So for me, it's all about just the, the, the math of how you generate demand and how you generate velocity for a retailer, if, if that's what you were driving at. Is there a favorite failure that you have that maybe at the time looked like a, a bleak thing or maybe it didn't turn out so well, but there was a great lesson you learned from that? My I mean, failure and I are good friends, but I tend to sort of swipe, le- I swipe left very quickly and sort of move on <laughs> if I possibly can. I, it's like uh, they do say that failure is, you know, you don't learn anything unless you fail. It's absolutely true. And, and I have failed many times. The, the trick, I suppose, is to try and fail quickly, you know, whether it's a new product, you know, you, you can't cling on to things that are not working. You know, you have to embrace failure and move on. I do have a very personal story, which is a Brit is just absolutely horrifying and, and still makes my hands sweat whenever I think about it. This was in Europe, not in the US, so no one can try and uh, work out who this is. But I, I built a charity partnership in my late 20s, years and years and years ago. You give a lot of money to a charity and you sort of want to build a great partnership that sort of has a lot of economic and environmental and social impact. It's a lovely thing that you want to do, but the trouble with working with charities is they, they come in sort of two or three different flavors. Sometimes they have a fantastic staff who really understand how to work with a brand. And sometimes they're, you know, they're lovely people doing great work, but they just don't have the quality of the people to engage with the amount of money or the ambition of the project. I unfortunately ended up in a, with a great charity partner with a, with a fairly sort of amateurish outfit that I was trying to sort of help do better. So I rang up one day to speak to the CEO of the charity and I spoke to a woman on the phone first and I said, um, hi, thinking that this was the CEO's uh, PA who I had a good relationship with. And I started talking to the PA and I said, look, I'm really sorry, but this other person, you know, just isn't up to scratch and it's a bit terrible and I really need to speak to the CEO and explain this and we're going to have to make a switch. And then she said, it's me. I'm the person. I wasn't speaking to the to the CEO's PA. I was speaking to the woman who I was complaining about. And I have to say, you do that once in your life, and you do that once only. I mean, that's not quite the failure you're looking for. But when when I read that question, my mind went back to it's a visceral moment. I still have never got over the embarrassment of that. It still makes me sweat with shame. As you were as you were sharing, I was like, I, I could feel that. I'm like, on both sides. I'm like, I can imagine being her. I can imagine being you. What a lesson. Cool. Let's get into um, kind of some current current events that we've we found. I think you saw maybe we posted a, a few articles on the prep doc. And before we dive in, I just want to mention to anyone listening. First of all, thanks for listening. Second of all, this entire show is sponsored by Salesforce. And so when you think of brands engaging with marketing and engagement, salesforce.com forward slash marketing. There's a ton of resources and tools there. Check it out. So thank you, Salesforce. The first article I want to talk about, Stuart, uh, it's around Applebee's. Applebee's pulled an ad from CNN after this kind of ill-timed commercial during the Russia-Ukraine coverage. When the Russians invaded Ukraine, CNN was trying to keep the breaking news going. It ended up going from air sirens and footage of Ukraine to a picture of an ad like from an upbeat Applebee's commercial. I know that there's no way that Applebee's could have known that would happen, but what are your initial thoughts on that? In general, my first thought is obviously it was a terrible thing to happen. I mean, it just it shouldn't have happened. First of all, it's just awful. The thing that really came to mind is the fact that just because something is technically possible doesn't mean that we should do it. 
And the trouble is at the moment we've got, you know, publishers and media companies wanting to, you know, generate revenue and therefore have advertising. We've got brands that want to take advantage of that advertising. And there's lots of clever things that we can do, you know, to pull in ads when certain people are watching stuff on connected TV, you can show your ads to the right people. There's a lot of wonderful digital technology available now. First party party data serving of ads to people watching Hulu or whatever. Um, What I don't understand is if I can find out almost the inside leg measurement of someone who bought one of my pizzas in Idaho, why the publishers have not worked more closely with brands to make this this kind of thing impossible to happen. We have contextually aware computing. Why haven't we got contextually aware advertising? And why why is this still about to happen? At the moment, it's still a bit of a wild west. I'm sure that there is a technical solution to make sure that brands don't end up in this situation. And that I'm sure publishers don't want it to happen. I think you know we just need to put a bunch of techies in a room and say, this needs to be fixed. It can be fixed. So fix it. Do you think that CNN should be held responsible to for trying to advertise that style during a crisis? I, I can't imagine any any brand being happy with that spot. The trouble is, it's sort of you know you could ascribe sort of blame to people, but I think actually this is more about the fact that you know two parts of a large organisation are not really thinking in sync. I'm sure editorial you know editorial doesn't speak to sales, sales is not talking to advertising. You know, no one no one is thinking through this. What I'd hope though is this is forcing the different bits of CNN and some of the really big brand advertisers to get in the room and say, how do we fix this? There must be some technical solutions. I like that. Okay. Next article is around, these are the pandemic business trends that are here to stay. In a 2020 study, 74% of B2B marketers said that influencer marketing improved their customer experience. Do you think more brands should be investing in influencer marketing? If so, how? Any thoughts on that? Love influencer marketing. I mean, we've we built our brand using influencer marketing. Whether those are sort of you know celeb influencers that we've had paid partnerships with, like Dan Levy, or whether they're sort of it's free influencer stuff that we've had from celebs who've posted about us, or maybe the sort of the micro influencer programs that that we do to build the Collip Power brand. But I sort of I'm old enough to sort of know go go back to when the sort of the web became social and people started you know ordinary people could start creating content and publishing it and doing whatever they wanted with it. I loved that period, that wild west of the internet. And then sort of people started to monetize it. And then as people started to monetize it, brands started to work out that they could do things with it. And suddenly there was a sort of an elite of people who were creators who were sucking in lots of eyeballs and brands were obviously sort of coming in and purchasing that. What I think I've learned over the last few years is that a brand has to be super careful to understand what role an influencer plays in what they're doing to build the brand. You know, you may be buying eyeballs, but are you buying eyeballs that really matter? Are you buying influential eyeballs? You know, are the influencers actually influential? Do the eyeballs they bring in bring in secondary, tertiary other eyeballs? Or are they just eyeballs? And and are those eyeballs, you know, do they really care about the brand partnership? So I do like influencer marketing. I do think that people have to be careful, you know, what they do, where they do, and make sure it's actually adding the value that they think that it's going to add. I think that, yeah, I think that's important. I was I was listening to a roundtable uh, of CMOs of Anheuser-Busch and a bunch of brands that were all talking about Super Bowl spots and and certain ads that they saw during there. And one gentleman was was sharing about, you know, this idea of just like giving a celebrity a bag of money, you know, to be an influencer, how brands need to be really careful there. And thinking about some brands 
that, you know, like Anheuser-Busch has the Clydesdale, right? Coke has the polar bear and how these brands kind of are creating these personas, you know, many of them, Geico and, you know, progressive, et cetera. And he was kind of presenting the point of creating and developing something along those lines versus just, okay, let's just find someone with a bunch of followers and say, here's a bunch of money, please, you know, tweet and share about it. And I think to your point, this is a strategic way to do it. Yeah. They need to have an, an affinity with the brand and it, it needs to be more than just some some cameo appearance, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, next article and last article, um, title is Flip That Phone Around. The Future of Social is Vertical. There was an interesting article in The Drum that talked about how video marketing today has drastically changed. They are saying that marketing videos should feel more raw and authentic and less polished and perfected. What are your initial thoughts on this shift? The thesis is interesting, but I think it's a bit of a false choice. If the content works, that's all that really matters, in my view. If the content works, then then it then it has to work. I think what's what's really interesting about content, though, is that consumers, through their role as creators, are actually influencing content fashion in real time. You know, if you look at TikTok, if you look at the way that sort of TikTok has grown and how consumers are using TikTok and influencers are using TikTok. Brands are now in, in 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 a very reactionary mode. They've got to create content that actually people want to consume, not just because TikTok's a particular sort of platform, but also because it's it's an explosion in humour and just really clever, funny, engaging content that consumers are making. And brands are now in a situation where they've got to sort of they've got to lean into that fashion. So it's not so much that sort of you know people need to make ads in messy apartments. It's about what's being made in that messy apartment. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I still want the heroic sort of 30, 30 second spot that, that generates a tear in my eye that really shows me what a brand believes in and what a, what a brand stands for. And I think different types of content, they have genuinely different roles. We've had some superbly interesting TikTok content, but our most successful TikTok, uh, very first TikTok that we, ever, that we ever did was actually done by our poor receptionist who was sitting alone in the office during the pandemic and decided one day just to do one. And it was absolutely superb. It wasn't part of our content strategy. It wasn't something that had been discussed in an editorial meeting, but our receptionist just got up, did a TikTok and, and it was brilliant. And actually she, she was the one that pushed us into this world of TikTok. And now Gail, our founder, has done a whole bunch and stuff like that. So I think it's not about I, don't, I think it's about whether the content works, but I think it's mostly about the fact that advertisers need to follow content fashion that is being driven by consumers now rather than ad agencies. Earlier this week, I was interviewing the former CMO of Chick-fil-A, Steve Robinson, amazing guy. And he talked about in the early days of Chick-fil-A, how they looked at all the other fast food chains and they said, okay, we're going to do 180 degrees of what they're doing, right? We're not going to show pictures of food and prices and do those things and I'm curious if, if if a page of that has been taken in the color power approach in terms of you look at all these other cool fast growth D2C CPG brands, maybe even the same category, maybe not. But as you look at the landscape, are there things that you've distinctively done that are just like on paper, people would have been like, why didn't they do that? Every, every, everybody else does that in the DDC, you know, CPG world. Or are you following the playbook? Or are you kind of saying, no, no, we want people to engage with our brand differently? Or is that more of a a trap to put yourself in. I'm curious. For us as a, as a relatively new brand to, to some of the, the others you've mentioned, I think that you know, we, we've had a job to educate people about who we are, 
why we are different. You know, the fact that we are a better for you, veggie forward, cauliflower cross pizza, that our chicken tenders are the lowest calorie ones on the market and they're coated in vegetables. They're not fried, they're air fried. We've had a lot of sort of infomercials to do. And I have to say, just as a marketer and like creativity, <laughs> I started to get a bit bored with our own content in some respects because it was like there was so much infomercial stuff because we had to. And I, and I sort of pulled it back and said, look, I know we have to do this stuff. We've got to educate people on why our better for you pizza is better than any other better for you pizza and how ours tastes better and why. And the fact that we have this amazing stone fire crust. And I know we have to do all that, but we know exactly who our consumer is, Sam. What's that? deliberately ungendered word. And we want them to be entertained. We need to entertain them. We need to find, you know, be interesting. So we did during the pandemic, we definitely pulled back on all the infomercials, tried to entertain Sam, our consumer, tried to be a little bit funny and engaging. You know, if they were going to spend 30 seconds with us, I wanted it to be fun and enjoyable. It's why we ended up doing the thing with Dan Levy. We were, we were lucky enough to partner with him just as Shit's Creek was coming to its its zenith, which was, you know, just a bit of luck, really. So I think I'm answering the question, but I, I, I think it's about trying to be entertaining. And I think if you, look in at, if you look in our space, you know, frozen entrees, frozen pizza, frozen pasta, all that stuff, I'm hoping that you'd, if you looked at the content side by side, I think you'd find us informative, engaging, and hopefully entertaining. Is there a, a channel or, you know, a path that you're doubling down more on this year that you maybe didn't in the last couple of years in terms of sharing content or on social? Is there areas you're kind of testing or getting more involved in? You're right. I mean, part of, as a new brand, the great thing you get to do is to experiment and sort of do some betas and try and work out what works and then scale that the next year. Some of the stuff that we've done this year has been quite interesting, trying to stitch together different marketing technology solutions to try and get around this problem that we're not D2C. I can do advertising and I can do coupons, but can I connect the two in some way? And can I connect the two in some way and use someone else's first party to data to move us to be a more precision performance marketing-led organization? So at the moment, essentially, I'm trying to sort of construct for a frozen brand, the kind of performance marketing engine that you would take for granted if you're a DTC brand. And I'm doing that with the help of some really great companies and partners like Numerator and WPP. And th these, these are companies that want to experiment, are interested in helping a small brand sort of break some of the rules and try and create some new solutions. Thoughts on the NFT and the metaverse? Like, Can NFTs and the metaverse be strategic for brands? I mean, some are saying that even providing profitable new business models and revenue streams. It's strange. I mean, God, I hate to date myself, although I think my gray beard probably already does that. <laughs> but I do, I do remember Second Life. And I remember everyone getting really excited about Second Life. And then one day, you know, and if I'd really listened to my younger self, if I could just go back and do this, when I remember saying to someone, I said, this is incredible. Do you realize that someone has just sold a virtual T-shirt to a virtual avatar in a virtual world. And this is like, I don't know, is it 2007, six? I can't remember how long ago it was. It was, it was about 15 years ago. If I'd understood the enormity of what I'd just said on that day, and I remember, I'm not, I'm not boasting, I genuinely said that to someone. I said, this is huge. This is absolutely massive. And then I just went off and just carried on doing my marketing job. And I didn't go and, I di I didn't go and get venture capital for the idea that was clearly staring me in the face, which was called the metaverse. So I do hope that whatever metaverse with a small M, maybe not Zuckerberg's capital M, but 
there is a future in it if people can get over the motion sickness. I do think it, it's the, the ambition that people are laying out for it is big and interesting. And we need these huge goals. If anything is going to be made, you know, people have to have a big vision for it. I think it will take a long time to backfill. It'll take a long time to create these virtual worlds where any kind of commerce can happen. It's just going to take time for, the, for, for everything to, to catch up. And it may not even be for me or our brand. Who knows? It, it, it's going to take a while. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, we're, we're talking to a lot of brands about this, all shapes and sizes, um, throughout the Fortune 100 and 500 and beyond. And it's interesting, a lot of them, I would say most of them that I connect with are, they're sitting at the table, you know, they're talking about it. But it, I, to your point, there's some maturity still happening in the industry. And, and I think that a lot of people are kind of waiting and seeing some industries like gaming and others have already been playing in that world. So it's a little bit different. But when you start looking at the B2B world or some of these interesting kind of fast growth CPG brands, like how could you play in that? It's, it's interesting to see, but I, I think I'm with you and kind of waiting and seeing how, how we can play. The, the irony is that the pandemic might, might accelerate the acceptability to B2B audiences. The fact that we've had to live in this virtual world, which is essentially a two-dimensional world for the whole time, you know, it may just do a little bit of behind the scenes rewiring of people's expectations and acceptability of that kind of environment. Is there anything else you want to make sure we cover? Having spent 30 years in marketing at places like WPP, the, the most exciting thing for me that's really happened coming to Colipower is to is to actually sort of almost create a marketing team from scratch. I think one of the things it's it's taught me is that it's in, in sort of on the agency side, sort of saying words like personalization at scale and first party data and marketing technology. And then you realize when you when you're sitting as the CMO in a young company, very open to buying those types of solutions that actually, you know, the marketing industry is still figuring stuff out. The data ecosystem is still not complete. There are companies that have part of the marketing technology solution, but they're not always joined up. And I've, I've found myself in a situation where working for this small but fast growing company called Colipower, not even for a Unilever or a PNG saying, well, why can't you take this data and do this, and then I can do that, and then this, and, and you, you sort of find people at these companies that shall remain nameless saying, oh, that's interesting, we should do that. I think there's a lot of exciting times ahead for marketing. I think marketing technology still has a lot of a way to go to develop, to create the kind of ROI, and, and also, frankly, just to be easy to use. Stuart, you had so many mic drop moments in this conversation. I wish I had a mic drop button. I just would push it and would say, <laughs> mic drop. Just really great perspective. And, you know, honestly, I mean, I, you did not disappoint. I knew that having someone of your caliber to be able to share perspective and, of course, be inside of the rocket ship that is Kali Power was awesome. So thank you for being here. Okay, lightning round. Here we go. We have Stuart Smith, Kali Power, head of marketing, global genius, innovator in the house. First question, Stuart, texting or talking? Talking, always. Okay. What is one thing you love and appreciate about yourself? Being a dad, super privilege. Share that with you, my friend. What's your favorite day of the week? Saturday, especially when there's English Premiership Rugby, followed by English Premiership Soccer, followed by probably college NFL or NFL. Okay. Oh, I love it. Okay. What is your favorite city in the U.S. besides the one you live in? Ask me New York. I lived there for four years before I came to LA. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? 
Oh, talk to animals. They, they, they can teach us a few things about the planet. Indeed. What's your favorite holiday? Oh, a long one. A proper two-week European holiday. None of these short American ones. Oh, I love it. Scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? I would let Gail, my wife, decide that. But actually, I'm probably, I'm probably an eight or a nine, given that I can drive stick shift on the left and left or right. Ah, that is a skill. Okay. Uh, please fill in the blank. Something wise my elders taught me was... Work to live, don't live to work. Would you choose invisibility or super strength? Oh, invisibility. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. Okay. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? Absolutely. Even Food, even with a fake face, has got to be wrong. Okay. Um, if you weren't in marketing leadership and advertising and all of the amazing things you do, what, what would you be doing? I'd be an artist in a little colony by a beach somewhere, probably Laguna. What is one of your least favorite marketing buzzwords? Uh, digital. It's meaningless. Digital. Okay. Last question. What would you go back and whisper in the ear of your younger self about being a leader? Well, I mean, apart from sort of buying Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm with you there. Listen a little bit more. Talk a little bit less. We were given two ears and one mouth. Use them in those proportions. Mm, it's well said. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.